The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. I'd like to welcome you all to Common Ground monthly Guest Dharma talk. Our speaker tonight, as I'm sure you're aware, is Henry Emmons. Uh, Henry is a psychiatrist and author of two books, Chemistry of Joy and Chemistry of Calm. And he's also developed the Resilience Training Program, which is offered at the Penny George Institute for Health and Healing. The uh, Resilience Program teaches people like myself how to reconnect with our resilience to help us recover from depression and anxiety. And that's how I got to know Henry, was through his Resilience Training Program. Um, anyways, I'm really glad you can join us, Henry. And uh, I don't know the title of your talk, but I'll let you announce that. And welcome, everyone. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming out on a nice, warm winter's evening. The talk is called Restoring the Elements of a Resilient Life. So I do want to talk about resilience and want to talk a little bit about joy. Um, but before I start, I just want to share a very brief story. Um, earlier this week, I was having lunch with my friend Kaya, and I was telling her that, you know, I get I get more nervous about um, speaking at a place like Common Ground because I feel as though I should say something that's somehow meaningful. <laughs> and um, Kaya really reassured me that. You know, whatever you say is going to be fine. You're going to, it, it will be appreciated. But I couldn't quite let it go. And so I thought about the, and was reminded about the movie City Slippers. Do you remember that? Do you remember Billy Crystal and Jack Palance had this thing going around where um, Billy Crystal thought Jack Palance somehow knew the meaning of life. And he kept kind of leading him on, saying, you know, there is this one thing you can do. And then, of course, uh, before, really right when he was about to tell him, uh, Jack Palance had a heart attack and died and couldn't tell him. So I want to assure you that before the night is done, unless I have a heart attack <laughs> or run out of time, um, I am going to tell you one thing that you can do. That's my promise. So I want to um, start with a quote that um, I heard some years ago when I was uh, really trying to pull together the work on depression and integrative ways of approaching depression that has became the book Chemistry of Joy and then became the Resilience Training Program. And I was uh, looking for a different way to think about this thing we call depression. And I came across this quote by Thoreau that said simply, surely joy is the condition of life. Surely joy is the condition of life. That statement sounds so simple. And yet, um, what, is, what does he mean by that? It's not how most of us experience life from day to day. Is it? It's not something that would immediately come to mind when 
you're asked what is the what's the condition of life this fundamental underlying condition and he says it's joy and he says surely it is with some certainty I don't really know what Thoreau meant by that but I want to read to you a little bit out of um, one of his journals that I think speaks a little bit to what he was trying to say from December 5th 1856 what you call bareness and poverty is to me simplicity God could not be unkind to me if he should try I love the winter with its imprisonment and its cold for it compels the prisoner to try new fields and resources I love to have the river closed up for a season and a pause put to my boating to be obliged to get my boat in I shall launch it again in the spring with so much more pleasure I love to have each thing in its season only and enjoy doing without it at all other times it is the greatest of all advantages to enjoy no advantage at all I find it invariably true the poorer I am the richer I am what you consider my disadvantage I consider my advantage while you are pleased to get knowledge and culture in many ways I am delighted to think that I am getting rid of them <laughs> and then later he says I have never got over my surprise that I should have been born into the most estimable place in all the world and in the very nick of time too well we could say that we could say something very much like that that we are born into a wonderful time and a fabulous place with a lot of um, really wonderful things around us and yet <coughs> oftentimes we are somehow blocked from experiencing it that way Thoreau I think was a resilient person probably it was his nature things have changed in the last 150 years I think and that may be part of why we as a people are maybe not quite as resilient as as used to be true so that may be Thoreau's uh, sense of what, what is joy <clears throat> I want to share with you another perspective on that a couple of months ago I was doing a talk and a book signing and this is just after this my second book came out and, and a woman came up to me and, and shared a little story which is the most touching thing I think I've ever heard about anything related to my books so she said that um, three years ago her four-year-old daughter died she had a terminal illness at birth and they, they knew she would die they didn't actually expect her to live four years but but she did and the woman of course was devastated <clears throat> she was um, filled with grief and it lasted it kept stayed with her and so um, it was only maybe a year before 
this, she came up and shared this story. She said a friend of hers had recommended she read The Chemistry of Joy, and she wanted to thank me. And she said she wanted to thank me because reading it helped her to reconnect with the joyful life that was her daughter's life. And she said something very, just very profound. She said, now I, I can hold this sadness and grief and loss, but also this joy that I knew from being with her for these four years, holding them at the same time. That's not the same thing as being happy all of the time. There's a richness to that, and there's a truth to that. And that's not to say that you know, her life was completely problem-free at that point. But, but that particular thing, which is probably the, the most important thing that had happened to her in her life, she had a very different relationship with it. She just held it differently. So I want to um, <clears throat> tell you briefly about a, a woman that I saw just recently, just a couple of weeks ago, for a consultation. And this is someone who was coming because she wanted to participate in the resilience training program. And like many, many people who um, I see there, she had been suffering with depression for most of her life, probably you know, 25 to 30 years. And also, like most of the people, she had tried virtually every medication that you know, we know of and use, and some had worked for a while, and, and then they'd stopped working. And so she had a, you know, just a very um, difficult story to tell. And she was still, she was in the midst of it. And she said something. You know, she, had, she had shared really her whole story, and, and, um, and then she, she said the statement, which I, I think was meant as um, kind of a summary, but it was, uh, I think it was a new way of thinking about this for her. And she, what she said is this. She said, and she was crying as she said it, I am more than this. I am more than this. My life is more than this. It was very moving. And she was very moved as she said that. So I, I ask you just to think about this. What, when you hear that in that context, what does that mean? What do you think she was saying? What, what is there in that that statement, that declaration of hers. When I um, heard it, and as I <coughs> thought about that and kind of felt the impact of that, um, I know that she was um, making a statement of, of grief. There was real sadness in that, that comment. And a real sense of loss, that so much of her life had been diminished by this condition, and she had not found a way out of it. And part of it is that she could not see a way out of it. She didn't know what else to do. But there's another element to this statement, and maybe you, you would have really had to have seen and, and heard uh, how it sounded. But there is a definite element of defiance strength. 
I want to read to you a poem that I think says something about that. That this woman represents to me. This is a poem by Rumi. It's called, Can't You See the Mighty Warrior? How often you ask, what is my path? What is my cure? He has made you a seeker of unity. Isn't that enough? All your sorrow exists for one reason, that you may end sorrow forever. The desire to know your own soul will end all desires. I'll read that again. The desire to know your own soul will end all desires. Can't you see, if you are not the king, what meaning is there in a kingly entourage? If the beautiful one is not inside you, what is that light hidden under your cloak? From a distance you tremble with fear. Can't you see the mighty warrior standing ready in your heart? It takes so much courage to to live with these kind of conditions and to keep fighting, to keep trying, and to keep believing or at least hoping in the belief that uh, things may change, that this is not what life has to remain as. I believe we are larger than we usually define ourselves to be. When we start to see that, when we start to recognize the mighty warrior within, and we start to engage all parts of ourselves, then the kind of changes that this woman longed for, I think, can begin to unfold. So um, many of you have studied Buddhism to some extent. I'm sure not everyone, but but many people are familiar with the Four Noble Truths. And the first says that life includes suffering. It's non-negotiable. There is lots of suffering in this country, in this community, at this time. And I think we have to tell the truth about that. That woman, in her statement, she was telling the truth about it, that her life is more than this, and this diminishment is painful. There's, that's the suffering. Roger Housden, who's a, a poet and writes a lot about other poets, he says this, suffering is not personal. It is an inherent part of the fabric of existence. And if we are lucky, if we are lucky, it will break our hearts open. 
So part of the truth about suffering um, is that these things we call depression and anxiety are incredibly common. And they're becoming more common all the time. We know that over the past century, rates of these conditions and other mental health problems have increased by about 10% every decade, every time it's been measured along with the census. It's gone up another 10%. Another way of thinking about that is that um, if you're born after World War II, your chances of developing something like depression or anxiety are 10 times higher than if you'd been born around 1900. That's just 50 years' time. The rates of these things have changed that dramatically. Now, many of us learned that genetics are at least a large part of the explanation for why some people get these conditions and others don't. And that is a huge piece to it. But we also know genetics don't change in 100 years or 150 years. It takes you know, many thousands and thousands of years for the actual genes to change. Something else has happened or is happening. And I don't pretend to know for sure what that is. But I don't think it's hard for us to speculate that changes in things like diet and the way we raise our food and animals, the things that we pour into them and into the soil, has something to do with it. It doesn't take too much imagination to think that um, the fact that most of us are sedentary when we've evolved to be moving and active almost all the time, that has something to do with it. The fact that we're indoors when, you know, again, through evolution, people have always been outdoors, always been part of nature until very, very recently. Or the fact that people slept on average nine hours a night 100 years ago, nine hours on average. That wasn't just in the winter in Minnesota. <laughs> and um, now the average amount of sleep is about six. Not sleeping, not being able to sleep is one of the thorniest problems that I see. And often it's voluntary, but just as often it's uh, just not possible, it seems, to sleep well. And I don't think it takes um, much of a stretch to think that the ways our communities have changed, families and extended families, just the support that has held people through times of stress has always been there, always. And it's not there in the same way now. But that has something to do with that. And then, of course, there's stress, the experience of stress. How many of you believe that life is more stressful now than it was 100 years ago? Just raise your hand. So a lot of you. I made the mistake once. Um, I was talking to a group of elder hostel learners, and I, I said that life is harder now than it was 100 years ago. Some of them were, I think, were 100 years old, and they, they very quickly uh, put me in my place. You know, life was always hard. It's always been hard. What is different, though, is that we are made, we're designed to withstand really, really significant stresses and then recover from them. 
but only if they are temporary, only if they come and go. And I think that's the big change in what we call stress. I think life is probably easier now in many, many ways. But we don't let down. We don't have that chance to recover. So um, we have these bodies that have become imbalanced. Our minds are unsettled. And then our hearts are disconnected. We don't have the same, um, the same degree of automatic built-in connection that people simply used to have. We have to create it. We have to be creative about all these things because they're not there automatically for us anymore. So what do you tell somebody who's struggled with a condition like this for 30 years? Is there a way out? Usually, when people come to, to this program, this resilience training, they're not looking for a quick fix anymore. They've tried that. It didn't work. What we usually do for these things is we medicate them. And if that worked, I would be all in favor of it. And it does work sometimes. And it often works for a short period of time. But I'm sure, as many of you know, uh, firsthand, it often doesn't last. The benefits of medication are simply unreliable. And it's not, it, it's not a good strategy to rely upon that. So um, I wanted to share with you very, very briefly a bit of the research that we are doing through, with the Resilience Training Program. I want to compare it to what happens with the usual kind of treatment. The usual kind of treatment for the vast majority of people is simply going to a primary care clinic and getting a prescription of medication. And, and that's all. Very few people actually um, are able to receive psychotherapy or, or maybe don't choose to, but it's, it's both. So that's the usual. And um, if that worked again, it would be fine by me. But the rates of recovery, of, of true recovery, are so low there's just unquestionably a need to do something different. Right here in, in our state, uh, there's a attempt to measure how well we're doing with, with treating depression, how, how much people are recovering from this kind of treatment. And people who, if you go to a primary care clinic, chances are you will, um, your doctor will, will assist in filling out a little questionnaire, nine questions about depression. And based upon that questionnaire, they will prescribe the medication, and then they will monitor that medication. So how does that work? Well, one thing is that within four and a half to five minutes of mentioning the first word about depression, people have a prescription in hand. Now, it's been studied. They had actors come in and use that, you know, that, time it and see what, what happened, and it's about four and a half minutes. Then this, this attempt to monitor and see how well are people recovering. By definition, based on the score of this test, the very best rate of recovery in the state of Minnesota is a, a, a one clinic run by Mayo, one of their satellite clinics, that has a 31% rate of recovery. 31%, that's not even a third. The average is closer to 5%. 
which is, I think it's worse than if you did nothing. If you should be able to do nothing and more people would recover. I'm not kidding. So then um, we measure, actually, this, this is one of the, the things we measure in the resilience training. And we have a whole series of other tests that we do. But that is one of them. Same questionnaire. The average rate of recovery uh, in our program is, is 60%. And these are people like the woman I mentioned who have been struggling with their condition for, for most of them for, for years. Not a um, simple thing to recover from. And, and most of them, like her, had tried you know, all the medications. They had stopped working. So there's something in what we're doing that is different. And I think it is because we are trying to address the different aspects of what it really is to be a resilient human being. And those are, we have to attend to the body, the physical part of us. The brain chemistry, if it is off, there's very little that meditation or other things can do to, to lead to lasting recovery, in my opinion. And so if there's something that's really um, out of kilter, it does have to be addressed. But usually it's addressed more effectively long-term through diet, exercise, maybe a few nutritional supplements, and sleep. Long-term, those things work better. There's very good research for some of that, what that I just said, exercise. There's very good research comparing it directly to medic medications in the first six months, the two groups do about the same. But after a year, the group that exercised only does better than even than a group that does exercise and takes a medication. So um, it's a very effective treatment, relatively speaking. Obviously, it's not foolproof for those of us who exercise would never get depressed, but, but that's not how it works. Nutrition is... Um, Again, it's common sense, I think, but the brain can produce these chemicals properly only, only by getting the raw ingredients in our food. There is no other way. You can't steal it from another part of the body. You can't manufacture it out of thin air. Producing these things like serotonin has to come through our food. And what are the kinds of foods and like the, the ways of eating? I, I think that it varies depending on your body type. I don't think the right diet is the same for everyone. But generally speaking, it's things that we all know. It is eating organic or, or nearly organic foods if we can, eating mostly grains and vegetables and fruits, a little bit of meat or, or protein. For some people, they do better eating more protein. I think that's a very particular body type and a particular problem with brain chemistry. But for most of us, it's, it's not necessary. And then... Um, there are a few conditions that occur with long-term chronic illness of, of all kinds that have to be addressed through diet. And those are inflammation. Inflammation is, a, is one of the big drivers of um, depression long-term. The whole body, inflammation. Largely, that's a function of diet. Um, metabolic problems. So, for example, not being able to metabolize sugar well, or, or eating so much sugar that it um, stresses the, the sugar and in, in insulin system too much. It's a really common problem. 
And then um, food sensitivities. Because of the changes in the way we eat, because we tend to eat the same few foods all the time, all year long. Remember what Thoreau's writing said, you know, each thing in its season. Very true with foods, I think. But because we don't vary it, we, we're just eating the same things year-round, we very frequently become sensitive to that. Then the body reacts, and that keeps inflammation going. And it's just a you know, systematic problem that has to be reversed or addressed, or the brain can't really recover. So we've got to address these physical things. And um, most people will feel at least somewhat better simply by doing that. Um, I don't know if any of you were here um, two or th maybe three years ago. I, I did a, a talk in the old Common Ground Center. And if you remember, there was an uh, elderly gentleman who, who had my book in his hand when he stood up to ask a, or to make a comment. And he's kind of holding my book. And, and I thought, oh, boy, what is, what is coming now? <laughs> and he says, uh, you know, he kind of shared his story about his own depression, which became really severe. And then he got on uh, Zoloft, and it got even worse. And then he had to be hospitalized. And then um, some friends of his, actually they're friends of mine who are neighbors of his, gave him a copy of my book. He reads it in the hospital. And this is what he said. I started taking B vitamins, and I was better just like that. <laughs> so there you go, B vitamins. <clears throat> but, you know, you, you don't know what is it that's going to click. What is, the, what is missing? What's going on that, that needs to be addressed for this person? And so in our program, we address a whole host of things that we think have something to do with, with depression and anxiety. I just gave a talk a week ago to a group of internists, and after my talk, one of the questions was, or it wasn't a question, it was a comment. He said, you need to do some research. You're throwing so many things at people, that how do you know what's working? You know, well, you need to, to, to separate it out and find out what it is, you know. And I, he, I think he missed the point that it was, um, really, we think it's the, this bringing all these things together, into integrating it. You know, doing a whole person program, that's what's healing. Meditation alone, exercise alone, nutrition alone. I don't think it has the same impact. So tying all these things together and trying to individualize it as, as much, much as we can. So the mind and the heart, we address largely through mindfulness practice. And what I call Buddhist psychology or the psychology of mindfulness. If people have a more solid physical base to work from, then they do these practices and they can really take hold. So I want to just briefly share with you what, what we do. And for many of you, it'll be familiar with, with some of the things that you do if you're part of this community or other sanghas. So we start with the mind. We start with um, Meditation is very similar to what we did earlier, where we, we begin by, by hopefully allowing the mind to settle a bit, allowing it to calm. And that opens up the possibility of doing what this, this woman did that I mentioned earlier, of being able to declare what she is experiencing and also what she wants of her life. 
because we have to have some degree of clarity to be able to see things as they really are. And we have to do that. It's so important to be able to see things as they are and then make our choices and make our movement. Now, if, if things as they are includes being depressed for 20 or 30 years, do you really want to see that? Can you really accept that? I would say yes, you do want to see that. And you can accept that because it is the only reliable way out. You have to start there. And it has to be accepted. Because the one thing that will really prevent the kind of transformation that, that someone like her longs for is if we become resistant in some way. We know we're being resistant if we feel closed, contracted, tight. And it happens to all of us. It's, it's completely unavoidable, in, at least in our resilience training groups and in myself. And I think it probably is for all of us. It's just how we're made. So the fact that we develop this resistance, I had a woman come just this week, and a um, very similar story to the other one where she's struggled for most of her life. She's now in her mid-50s, and she says, you know, I am scared to do this program because I know I'm not going to do everything <laughs> that you tell me to do. I just know that. I want to, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to really eat that well. I'm not going to do exercise to the extent I know I should do. She just knows she's going to get resistant. So she, so she's scared. She is also scared because she said, I feel like this is my last chance. I feel as though I've tried everything else. And if I blow this, then what? Is there any hope left? And so what I told her is that the resistance she's describing is completely normal. We expect it. If it weren't there, then literally someone could just read a book and apply everything and you know things would get better. Sometimes that happens. But most of us need more than that. We need some support. We need some guidance. We need some accountability. We need some structure. That's the kind of thing that we're trying to, to offer. So I said that very clearly. Yes, you will be resistant. You won't do everything right, and that's fine. Nobody does. I don't. You can ask my wife afterwards what I eat uh, <laughs> when I'm at home. But, um, but resistance. So we've got we've to be skillful at working with it. It's going to arise, and it is, the, it is the thing that gets in our way most of the time. The uh, other side of that, the fear that this is not going to work, and then what? Or, as I heard last night in a, a follow-up group, someone who had gone through our program, had done just beautifully, was completely free of anxiety and depression for a long time, and then just recently, it came back. 
she was devastated because she didn't think it. She thought that it was she was done with that, and it came back. So, what do you say to that? And what I said to both of them is is this that it is not a linear process. We don't we don't improve continuously like you can if you're manufacturing a car. You know, it it's a gradual back and forth, up and down thing. And in fact it doesn't really count for much if you relapse, if you get back into your old patterns. It's probably to be expected. What do you do then? That's the question. What do you do when that happens? How do you hold that? How do you work with that? And you do it just the same way. You have to accept (coughs) being there in that moment, but also knowing if someone has had an experience of actually recovering from this, then you know what Buddha's teaching is been telling us for 2,500 years that nothing is permanent. No, Rilke says it this way, no feeling is final. It doesn't stay. And if you've had the experience of it not being there, you know that it doesn't stay. In the moment of getting depressed again or before experiencing some real relief, it might be hard to believe that it's not how our minds work. You know, we can't see much beyond the unpleasantness of this moment. But that's the practice. That's where we that's where we want to get more and more skillful, is to be able to encounter like that mighty warrior, whatever is before us, with some degree of equanimity, because we know it is not final. We know it's not going to last. We know there are things that we can do that will move that along, move it through us. So the approach to the psychology of mindfulness that we take, I think, is, is twofold. The first is to be able to see things clearly as they really are. That's the practice of Vipassana, or mindfulness, you might say. And the second is to, to practice opening the heart. We kind of um, referred to that during the meditation. And it almost is as simple as I described, at least I believe it's that simple, that we can turn our attention inward and know immediately where we are in that openness or closeness of the moment. And the heart closing is completely (coughs) natural. It's a part of who we are. The problem is if it doesn't open again. The heart closes when we feel threatened, when we feel scared, uh, we feel somehow unsafe. It's going to close. It's a protective thing. But we want to make sure that it doesn't stay that way for weeks or months or years. We want to be have the skill to be able to turn our attention toward it and allow it to open again. So that is the practice of um, enlarging ourselves, 
The first, you might say, is the practice of doing less harm to ourselves. Because our thoughts and our emotional reactions can be kind of harmful at times. It can be very harmful for some of us. So we need to get some skill with that, with learning how to manage those, um, those demons that arise in our own consciousness. But we also want to be able to enlarge ourselves, to be more than, than this. And that's the practice of working with the heart and opening the heart, cultivating a good heart is what I call it. So I want to um, save a little time for some questions and comments. So I'm going to close in a, a moment here. But I, w- I want to say something about the, the need for connection. In our, uh, in our program, very quickly, we began to realize that <clears throat> in addition to trying to get the brain chemistry healthier, there were two things that were fundamental for people to really be able to, to transform their relationship with these conditions. There are two things. One is... And this is kind of the, the turning point, I would say, is self-acceptance. If any of you have encountered depression yourself or know someone who has, or anxiety for that matter, you know that one of the, the, the biggest stumbling blocks is this constant self-derision. It's the way we hold ourselves. And so um, you can do a lot of self-care. You can do a lot of things right, and so long as we're still holding ourselves in a harsh way, it's not going to fundamentally change. But if you can begin to practice <laughs> compassion and openness to the self, that really begins to shift, and that can start to open up a whole host of other things. So self-acceptance, I think, is probably the first and, and, and foremost change that needs to happen. But the second is to develop a genuine sense of connection with others. It's not something you can do alone. We started this program with groups of people and not really conscious of how important that was to do it in groups. It just seemed like a sensible way to do this. But we very quickly began to realize that there is something happening because we we really really work at creating a a sense of spaciousness and safety. And we're not doing therapy. We're not asking for a lot of self-revealing. But we are asking for openness, non-judging, and and really being present with one another. And within a very few sessions, there is something fundamentally different that I think can only happen in a group of some sort because people start to connect at a deeper level. They start to break down the sense of isolation and disconnect. And it just happens if the environment is right and people approach it from a sense of of safety and uh, and some caring about one another. So the Dalai Lama says it this way. He says, we can live without religion and meditation but we cannot survive without human affection. We can live without 
religion and meditation, but we cannot survive without human affection. So I uh, promised you I would share the one thing <laughs> that you need. The one thing you can do. Now this is, I couldn't believe I found this quote, but it's actually, the quote is actually titled, There is One Thing We Can Do. <laughs> and it's by a guy named Mark Van Doren, who I, I'm not familiar with, but if anybody knows um, anything about him, let me know. But this is what he says. <clears throat> there is one thing we can do. And the happiest people are those who can do it to the limit of their ability. We can be completely present. We can be all here. We can give all our attention to the opportunity before us. So thank you very much. And we do have some time uh, for some questions or comments. Vitamin B? Yeah. It must work for people over 85. <laughs> response is, is also called the fight or flight response. And if you think about it, what, what that means is that our bodies, because we feel threatened in some way, and you know, thousands of years ago, when people were threatened, they were really, their lives were really threatened. Um, nowadays, that may not be so, but we don't, our brains can't tell the difference. A threat is a threat, and our bodies react the same way. And so um, fight or flight means that you are being prepared, your body is being prepared either to pick up a club and have a fight or to run as fast as you can. So it is gearing you up for vigorous physical activity. And when we don't do that, that is one of the reasons why the stress response doesn't come down. Those hormones stay elevated, they, they, they will eventually become harmful. They'll wreak havoc. The initial response is completely normal. It's supposed to happen that way. Um, but it's only supposed to be that way for a few minutes to maybe an hour or two. Apparently, fighting or fleeing doesn't, you can't do it for very long. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it, there's a lot of sense in, in that. Um, now, that's part of the story. But the other part, in, in the case of police officers, they are, they are experiencing real threats. For most of us, you know, the threats are perceived. Um, it's a sen general sense of unsafety or something, but it is, um, so it's really important for us to also try to deal with the root of it. 
and, and understand what it is, how we're responding, and what we can do to not to react so much. Sometimes it's as simple as giving ourselves a complete rest, something we're not very good at anymore. You know, when I was a kid, um, and many, when many of you were children, I bet you remember having very, very little to do on one day of the week, right? Saturday, Sunday, whatever the day was, but, but where there was nothing scheduled and nothing going on. We have completely given that away, very, very foolishly, I think. And that's just one small example, but, um, but you're right. It needs to be balanced with, if, if you have that kind of strong stress response. Anybody else? Could you say a little more about the inflammation and the role that that plays and where that plays in the body and, and what causes that and things like Because that seems to be, you talk about that a lot. Yeah. Um, when you think about um, brain health, the brain is part of the body. And it's affected just as much by things going on in the body as the heart is. And so we know and have known for a long time that, that heart disease, the kind that, um, that really causes problems, you know, heart attacks and, and things approaching heart attacks, it is really driven by inflammation far more than it's driven by cholesterol buildup in the, in the, in the arteries. It's inflammation because it, it changes the lining of the arteries and so forth. Well, the same thing is going on in the, the brain. It's having the same kind of set of problems. Um, systemic inflammation is often hidden. It, it's, it's not something we, we recognize easily. If you have inflammation, let's say you, you get a, a cut or, or an infection, well, that's really easy to see. But when it's going on throughout the body, in the vessels, in the muscle tissue, in the brain tissue, you don't see it, but it's there. And it is extremely common. One way of suspecting that it's there is if one is um, overweight and carries extra weight in the midsection. It's a very strong clue. You know how people have different ways of, of gaining weight. And those who gain it in the midsection very often will have this problem of systemic inflammation. And one reason for that, and one reason it's so important with depression, is because it's really tied with the stress hormones. And so um, when you've got chronic stress and those cortisol levels do not come down, it, it really causes that weight gain in the middle. And then, ironically, that, that tissue, the fat tissue in the midsection becomes another endocrine uh, gland, and it produces more of the stress hormones. And then you get this vicious cycle, you know, that's really hard to break. Now, I think inflammation like that is largely diet-related. Sometimes it's because we eat too much. Sometimes it's because we eat um, too many refined carbs sugars and such, and sometimes it is because um, we, we simply have um, a lifestyle where our stress hormones stay elevated. I think those three things are, are the really common causes of it. But it has to be calmed down, or, or the brain really, the balance of the brain is, is going to be really hard to achieve. So, you know, largely that means looking at diet. A simple way to do that is to add fish oil to your diet, which is a good 
way of countering inflammation. But if you've got those other signs or if there's other conditions suggesting it, then you got to do more than that. Looking at calories, looking at food sensitivities, looking at the nature of the calories you're getting. Yes. Yeah, the the that measuring device I mentioned, um, it's it is basically a list of symptoms. And that's really how we define depression. Depression, and I, I should I should say this more often, it is not one thing. It is not a single entity. Anxiety is not a single entity. It just shows up similarly, but it's caused by all kinds of different things, and there's very different things going on in the brain. But because of you know, how we're made, there's very few ways that that um, gets expressed. And so it's measuring symptoms, but it's not a very complete measure of depression or recovery. I think there's a, a problem with that questionnaire, partly because it's it's designed to look for physical symptoms. And many of the very symptoms it's describing are made worse by medications. Things like um, anxiety. Very often, a, if a dose of a medication is too high, people feel more anxious. Not sleeping. Same thing. Medications affect sleep. Um, loss of sexual interest. Well, medications do that, too. There's a you know, whole host of things. Even a flat mood, which feels like depression, if a person's on too much of an antidepressant, it's a really common consequence. I think one of the reasons that we're seeing such a better response rate is because, one, we're not adding medications, and very often we're helping people reduce them very cautiously. I don't think that that's always right for everyone to get off medications. That's not what I'm about. But because I so often see people on three or four or more different things or on really high doses, and I know they're, it's causing some of their problems, being able to, to reduce that safely and gradually is usually really helpful. It kind of frees things up a little bit. So I don't think it's a, it's a very good measure, uh, but it's what we use. So it's what, what every, all researchers use, that or something very much like it. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I don't have a good answer for that, but I would say that um, the recovery to me means that, that one has gotten some freedom from the condition. You know, there does need to be some, there needs to be relief. There needs to be less suffering. But also, um, I think where they've got some skills that they can take with them that they can use, because if it's been recurrent, it is very likely going to be recurrent again. And they've got some skills that they can use to um, to deal with that if it, if it arises. Yes? I'm just curious to hear uh, a little more about, uh, you mentioned the importance of, of compassion towards the self. I'm curious to know in the resiliency training, if you have 
any way to <laughs> Trick themselves into self-compassion. Self-compassion, because it's such a condition of response. That self-judging or deprecating, whatever that is, right. it's such a condition of response. I'm wondering in your program. <clears throat> that's a great. Cool. That's a great question. I don't know if I would say it's a trick, but. Um, <laughs> But I think that the, the best way to describe that is, um, you know, self-derision is, it's like any other thought or emotion. You cannot stop it from arising. That's my belief. You know, I don't think, I don't know how to stop a particular thought from arising. I don't know where they come from. I don't know how you could go back in there and and say, I am not, in fact, try it, and I'm not going to have that thought. And, you know, of course, you'll have it more. Um, so the trick is to cultivate enough attention that you can notice the moment that thought arises, as, you know, as much as you're able to. And then um, that, in that moment, you've got some choices. The thought itself, I don't think you have a choice about. I think it just pops in there. But what you do then is something you can uh, practice and get better and better at. One option for that is, which seems very counterintuitive, is to invite it in, to welcome it, to you know say to it, to that thought, oh, yes, please, come, stay as long as you would like. You know, be be there. You know, reside with me. And if you do that, it won't stay. It can't really abide with that kind of acceptance. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned um, diet and the effect it has on mental health. Do you know of any specific chemicals or additives um, such as MSG that should be avoided to prevent? Yes, I think there are some um, there, there, there are some elements added to food that I would consider to be neurotoxins. MSG is one of them. I think aspartame is another, and I think really um, most of the artificial sweeteners would fall in that category. And for some people, sugar is another. Not for everyone, but for a lot of people. And, and so um, a neurotoxin is going, very often it's going to accelerate brain activity. So if you've got anxiety or if you've got agitation, you know, anger, irritability, which sometimes you know, feels like depression, then very often those, those kind of things in food, I think, will worsen it. Some people react to nitrates as well. I think in a little different way. I don't think it accelerates. Um, brain activity in quite the same way, but I do think some people have a uh, sensitivity reaction to it. And you know, one of the, the real tricky things about food sensitivities, I was, I was alluding to this earlier, but it's that we, um, we don't know we have them because we're immersed in this sea of, you know, the same foods all the time. There's, there's no way of pinpointing it. You know, you don't notice it because you might eat the same thing every single day. Um, but, you know, to the extent possible, noticing 
how we react to something we've eaten within a, an hour or two afterwards is a, is a good way of, of beginning to tease this out. And then if you're really curious, uh, doing some kind of elimination of a few things just for a couple of weeks and then adding them one at a time and watching your reaction to it. That's a very helpful way of becoming aware of what it is that's, that's uh, causing your, your problems in food. Yes. I'm wondering if you would talk about um, psychotherapy and your sense of the role of psychotherapy in eating Yes. So um, I've been practicing psychiatry now for 20 years, give or take. <laughs> I can't quite do my math right now, but about 20 years. And um, when I started, Psychotherapists were very reluctant to refer patients for medications. And family doctors were very reluctant to prescribe medications. So everybody came to psychiatrists for their medication. Now, and, and actually this has been going on for quite some time, <clears throat> it, it's shifted completely the other direction so that very often um, people are just going, they go right to medication, whether that they go to their family doctor or sometimes even uh, from a therapist. But they'll often refer them right away for medication. So there's been a very big sea change in that that I don't think is altogether good. Um, even though we do not do psychotherapy in our, what I consider to be psychotherapy in our program, I think there is a very important role for it um, for certain kinds of, of therapy. I am a little cautious about the kind of therapy that that spends a great deal of time in the past. I think some people need to do some work, but it, I often see people get stuck in it. And I also think that <coughs> that there is a, a way of in which we, if we put all of our attention or our focus upon what is wrong or what was wrong and what caused this, that it we tend people tend to cycle in that and have a hard time getting out of it. So I think therapy, too, needs to be used kind of prudently. But I think it's for in the right hands and for the right kinds of conditions, it's extremely helpful. And sometimes you, one does need to go back and, and do some, some work. But, but the work is done in this moment. The, the work of recovering, of healing, of, of dealing with old wounds or emotions is done in this moment. And so developing the ability to be able to attend to those emotions and really feel them, genuinely feel them, has is, is got to be there. Does that answer your guess? I'm going to back there. Do you have any insight about maybe a different intake of the role of uh, media and television? And I'll tell you the reason why I asked that. I've noticed uh, I've all the cut out television, and I have experimented where you know I kind of back on it. You know I kind of watch current event shows, and I don't mean to be an indictment because this might this is probably more peculiar to me. But in comparison, my host television life is, feels a lot better than having it in my diet or day to day. Oh, I, mean, I really like the way you phrase that, having it in your diet of daily. And I'm just, I'm really, so I'm, I'm taking the lead from that. And uh, so, Andrew, have you experimented at all with that? Or? Yeah, I, I, I think of it just the way you described, that it's it's like 
it's like food. It's, it's, it's what you're taking in. You're taking it into your consciousness, you know, in through your eyes and ears, but you're still taking it in. And is it good for you? Is it healthy? Is it helpful in some way? And, and you're saying probably for you not. I remember, um, I think I read by Neil Holzman, and I'll never forget this because it just seems so poignant, but he wrote this book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, great book, and he made, he was observing the, the role of media over the last, you know, for the history of the United States, and he made, he made the basic observation that we're not designed to take in some hard-hitting event like a war or something, and then switch over to a Twinkie commercial. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, Which one is worse, though? But that really just our nature is, is really problematic. So they say, how many times does that go on in a day, day after day after day? I just no, I agree with you. There, and there was a study done about probably 15 or 20 years ago that you couldn't do today because of Internet access. But at that time, a uh, small city in Scandinavia, the researchers got all media outlets to agree. For six months, they wouldn't uh, put any of those horrible stories on. They wouldn't do the local you know, rapes and murders and burglaries and such. They just would have, I guess, important national news, and then I don't know what they did with the rest of their time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that went on for six months, and then they measured rates of depression and anxiety, which went way down. And then they went back to, you know, doing their old thing, and they measured it again six months later, and the rates popped right back up where they had been, just that one intervention. So I, I think you're on to something. I just want to say, maybe it's not even just television, Now, you're absolutely right, and, and I think one of the effects of that is that it doesn't really allow our minds to settle into kind of a natural rhythm, you know, just a, a nothing fancy, nothing even related to meditation here, but just a natural kind of settled down rhythm. It just doesn't happen if we're constantly stimulating ourselves in that way. Yes? Since Chemistry is going to is there anything you would add to that if you were coming on now? Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I actually am in, in the works of, of developing a workbook that's based on that book, and so it kind of gives me a chance to think that through. Um, and with the workbook, I'm, what I'm trying to do is to make it more programmatic, you know, a little more systematic so it's a little easier to follow. Many people will say that there's, there's just so much in there, so many different suggestions and whatnot that it's kind of hard to know where to start. So, so that's one thing. I would make it maybe a little more simple or, or structured. But in terms of, um, I guess, supplements or strategies, techniques, not so much, you know, because I think the book is largely based upon uh, ancient wisdom, which hasn't changed in the last five years, <laughs> so far as I know. <laughs> and then, um, you know, the supplements, I think, are still pretty solid. And I don't think there's anything really new in that regard. There are some more sophisticated ways of measuring and deciding what's right for people, but wouldn't... Yeah, I think so much you've changed things, but it just... 
Yeah, I mean, there's yes, there's there are there are more there's more even that, that could go into it. Um, it, it. That's that's a good example. So how should you get It's the same thing. Just go. Over <laughs> <laughs> uh, I gotta tell you, I'll, I'll tell you. A, I'll tell you a quick story. You, you, many of you know Parker Palmer, probably, right? Par Parker's an author, and he's been kind of a, a friend and mentor to me, and. Um, and I knew him before I wrote the first book. And so when I, when the book came out, he he he's on the back cover. You know, he said something about the book. And, and so I um, had him over to the house, and was, we were talking about the book. And you know, I, I can't remember who mentioned writing another book, but I said, I don't think I have anything more to say. <laughs> and Parker says, That's okay. You just have to figure out how to say the same thing in a slightly different way. <laughs> Great question. Um, there is a a growing movement towards incorporating mindfulness into psychotherapy. It's uh, not widespread yet, I wouldn't say, but it's on the verge of becoming widespread. And I think that it makes so much sense because sometimes, you know, it, it is necessary to do family of origin work. It is sometimes the source of a few problems, and um, or you know, childhood traumas or what have you. It's not that I'm not trying to say that you know we don't want to deal with that. But I think you know to be able to have um, to work with somebody who is skilled at um, working with the mind and working with the presence in the present moment, and then being able to use some of those skills to work with those old things. I think that's a powerful, powerful combination. And you know there there are more and more people who are being trained in that. There's a huge amount of interest in it, I can tell you. And um, so that is something you can even ask, you know, about a therapist. Have you got any experience in incorporating mindfulness into psychotherapy? I think we need to leave it here. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes over, so. It's better than last time I was a half hour over. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, thank everyone for coming out and thank Henry for giving the talk. And, and there's tea and treats out in the community room, so stay around. And Henry's group to stay around and answer more questions at these Sunday books. So thanks again for coming out. Thank you.